Well, good morning again, everybody. Please be seated, yeah. Uh, I know I don't look much like Nick Stone. We promised that the Stone family would be with us this Sunday, but um, uh, sadly, uh, Nick and his family have uh, sped off to Canberra uh, yesterday morning to be by the bedside of Nick's mum. Um, so please be praying for the Stone family at this time. And Nick has, of course, passed on his uh, greetings. He says hello, sends his love, and uh, is, we're all quite disappointed that they're not here with us this morning, but we understand why. So this sermon is Nick's, okay? Well, okay, it's 80% Nick's. And you'll hear the, the, the phrases and uh, all of that. So that's, this is from Nick, most of it. Um, apart from the bits I've got my hands on. <laughs> and I'll try and get my hand gestures right, okay? Because that's very important when Nick's preaching. Uh, that was a little inside joke. Anyway, we move on. Uh, Nick starts. He says, the ABC show, Q&A, uh, a few years back, held a festival of dangerous ideas. The question was put to the panel... Which dangerous idea has the greatest potential to change the world for the better? One panellist said that abortion should be mandatory for 30 years to deal with population growth. Wow. Feminist Jermaine Greer simply said freedom. And then Peter Hitchens, not Christopher, Peter, Peter Hitchens said this, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead, and that, and that is the most dangerous idea you'll ever encounter. The host pushed back, asking, why dangerous? And Peter, Christian, Peter Hitchens, he's a Christian, not the atheist brother, Christopher. Peter responded, because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore, we all have the, a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. Well, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul stands before the intellectual elite of Athens. And the message hasn't changed. Did you see verse 30? God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead that the one we call Jesus is the point of difference between lasting hope and that which isn't lasting hope. And so Acts 17, I hope you have it open in front of you, verse 16. Uh, in chapters 16 and 19, Paul's been on a tour of several cities around Asia Minor, uh, which is what is modern-day Greece and Turkey. Maybe you've been there. Here he comes to Athens the place of the intellectual elite, the place of philosophers, who, we're told in verse 21, what do they love? They love nothing better than talking about and listening 
to the latest ideas. Uh, That's pretty much the place of the Areopagus. But what Paul finds in a city, it greatly distresses him. He finds a city, verse 16, full of idols. And we know what an idol is. An idol is something, someone or something we give honour to in the place of the one true and living God. And it appears that the residents of Athens are worshipping anything and everything else. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We will worship someone or something. And so in this way, 21st century residents of Inverell or Bogabri or Ho Chi Minh or Bangkok are no different. We naturally worship something, anything. And too often, it's that thing that is not the Lord. But notice the Apostle Paul, he doesn't cast these people off and give up hope. He doesn't, uh, instead he reasons with them, verse 17, such that he speaks with them the good news of Jesus and his resurrection, verse 18. And so our question might be this morning, well, amidst all the idolatry, Amidst all these competing ideas and the competition, how does Paul do that? Well, Paul does it by making it, finding a point of contact. And the point of contact is quite clever. It's verse 23, you see it there. It's an altar to the unknown God. And so can you see Paul's point of contact? He comes in, he says, oh, you're worshipping. I see you're worshipping a God you don't know. Kind of like you're covering your bets. Well, let me tell you about the God you don't know. Let me introduce you to him. It's quite clever. And Paul's first point is that God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Athens was full of temples and idols. And these guys thought you could somehow contain God or confine God, uh, put him in a box or a room if you like. But Paul rejects that idea. He says, no, you, you don't create a place for God to live in. Our God, he is the one who created a place for you to live in. The universe is his home and he's letting you live in it. Paul's second point is that God is the sustainer of life. Verse 25, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So God is not dependent on us. He doesn't need us to turn up with, uh, in Thailand. Uh, we, were, we were fascinated to see them all delivering bottles of red Fanta and, and putting it on the spirit houses uh, as if God needed a drink, I think. I don't know what it was about, but it, was, it seemed strange. It seemed like there was something that God needed uh, and that he needed to provide that fresh fruit, whatever the case was, would be. But God is not dependent on us. See, we've got that the wrong way around. We are dependent on him, even for every breath we breathe. He doesn't need us. In fact, 
We desperately need him. Our very breath is dependent on him. Here's the third point. Uh, it comes in verse 26 to 28. And the third point is that God is the Lord of history. So verse 28, from one man, God made all the nations. I take that to be um, Adam. And from Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we, ha- ha- we live and move and have our being. Ever wonder what the point of the garden was? Do you ever wonder what the point of, of uh, that, the story about Adam was? Well, the Apostle Paul gives you an answer. He said, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, that this God would be known. Uh, Nick continues to write. He says, why was I born in Windsor in Sydney? And why did I move to Cooma to grow up? And then Armadale and Sydney and Inverell and Bogabri. Why was my sister-in-law born in Bavaria? Why did she come on exchange to Wollongong? Why is she back living in Bavaria with her husband, who's, now my, who's my brother? Why was my friend Abdullah born in Saudi Arabia? Why did he come to study in Armadale? Why is the refugee born in a war-torn country and forced to flee to find safety in a country like Australia? Well, there could be a myriad of reasons for all these scenarios. But the Apostle Paul says here in Acts 17, as the Lord of history, there are no coincidences. It all happens so that ultimately we would seek God and find him. See, it's not God who is lost, it's humanity. We are the ones who are lost. And God is the one who has first reached out to us by creating us and giving us that longing for him. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has set eternity in the human heart. It's given us a longing for lasting hope. And so God has you here in Inverell so that you might seek him and find him. And if you've done that, he has you here in Inverell to join in his great mission of seeing others, both here in Inverell and around the world, seek him and find lasting hope in Christ Jesus. Paul's fourth point is this. God is the father of every human being. Look at me at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. You see, we get it the wrong way around. God made us in his image. We didn't make God in our image. He made us in his. Uh, To get it upside down is certainly what the folk in Athens had done. Folk is such a neat word, isn't it? Paul says, we are God's offspring, made in his image. He is not our offspring, made in our image. And because of that, it means that every human being is not an inanimate lump of wood 
of all stone. No, we are living. We are precious to God. We are valuable and we image the true living God to the world. Now we've dealt with those four points about what God is like and the question has to be at this point, is this the God we worship? Now we've been asking that question as we've looked at Exodus, haven't we? Is this the God whose name you might be jealous for? Jealous? Well, if that sounds strange, listen to last week's talk. But yeah, jealous, like a husband is rightly jealous for the love and honour and devotion and affection of his wife or vice versa. This is part of Paul's distress because he is jealous for God. He's jealous that people would worship him rightly as the one true living God. And he walks into this space and he sees everybody getting it all wrong. His concern is that people would rightly know the Lord. And so he tells them what they need to know. You've got the Lord wrong. You're not honouring the the living God right now. And he wants them to rightly relate to the Lord. I mean, these Athenians, they've had so many cracks at their own idea of God, haven't they? They've covered all the bases. But Paul's saying, you're all wrong. And it's really awkward, isn't it, when people don't rightly relate. You know how that awkwardness when someone gets someone else wrong interpersonally? And I think that's part of Paul's angst, is that they're getting the Lord God wrong. The Lord whose name Paul is jealous for whose name he wants honoured and praised and glorified in the nations. And so Paul is vexed. We know Pharaoh got the Lord wrong, didn't he? We know how that ended up. And can I say, here is another motive for mission. A motive for mission is, yes, Jesus commanded us to go out, and so we should. But we go out also because we are jealous for the name of God. We are jealous for the name of God because we love God, don't we? And we love that his name would be honoured and exalted and praised rightly in the nations, in our community, in the world. And so there's so much speculation about who God is and what he is like. And we've seen speculation about who Christ is and what Christ is like, haven't we? Well, you read it over the past few weeks. Everyone seems to know what Jesus has said in the Bible. Oh, the Jesus I know would never have said that. He would never have talked about hell and judgment. And you go, really? I don't know what Bible you're reading. The sobering truth is that when we open up the Gospels and we come to Jesus the way he's been revealed to us in the Scriptures, we find that nobody... No one talked about hell and judgment and the need to repent more than Jesus did. And he called people to repent. And Jesus said that he's coming back. And Paul now says that Jesus is coming back. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
Let me rephrase that. But now he commands all people everywhere to change their minds, to change their thinking. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And we know that one to be Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So here is the dangerous idea that the world desperately needs. It's the dangerous idea that changes things for the better. This is how men and women and children seek and find the true and living God in the person of Jesus Christ. And we know this because he is the man who came back from the dead. We know that our rejection of God and our worship of everything else cannot go unpunished. Because God has raised Jesus from the dead to be king and judge of this world. Yet the wonderful news is that if we repent, we find the one who took the punishment for our sins so that we need never stand under judgment. Now, how did the people of Athens respond? Well, we're told by Dr. Luke in verse 32. Uh, Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, still true today, but others said, well, we want to hear more about you. We want to hear you again on this subject. That's nice. And at that, Paul left and um, um, some of the people became followers of Paul Paul and believed. Uh, Did that mean they followed Paul and not Christ? I I don't think we need to conclude that um, at all. Um, among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus. That's the council. Of, that's this mob that get together and do philosophy because it's fun, apparently. And also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. And so it's a mixed response. Some sneers, some want to find out more, some believe. And maybe you identify with one of these responses. If you responded in one of the first two ways, can I urge you to consider again why God has you here in Inverell? In his mercy, it's so that you might find him and seek him. And the invitation is to come, to repent, to change your mind and to put your faith in Jesus so that you might have lasting hope. If you're a Christian, can I urge you not to keep the good news to yourself? You will get different responses, Paul did, but the gospel needs to go out all the same. And it will continue to go out as men and women and children proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, so that men and women and children might seek God and find him, turn in repentance and faith, and have lasting hope. A hope that sees us through death and God's judgment. And can I encourage you to get on board with this mission of God? Not just here in Inverell, but around the world, so that the Muslim in Saudi Arabia might find and seek God. The atheist in France might find and seek God. And so that the the Ugandan pastor may be better equipped to help Ugandans seek and find God as they put their trust in Jesus, the source of lasting hope. Cody Lee has become a bit of a sensation. I'd never heard of Cody Lee until I read Nick's notes. Uh, This blind, apparently maybe she's big in Bogabri, I don't know. Uh, This blind and autistic boy 
performed on the show America's Got Talent. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had a few, nervous, uh, a few nerves going on such an intimidating stage with a crowd and judges ready to tell you just what they think of you. But Cody Lee has a gift he wants to share. And we need to remember, Cody is blind and autistic. He sat down at the piano and played and sang so well that he got a standing ovation. Cody has a gift that he wants to share, no matter how in, uh, intimidating the context. Paul, similarly in Acts 17, has a gift that he cannot keep to himself. He has good news that he knows is powerful, and he's going to share it, no matter how intimidating the context, even among intellectual elites in Athens. God calls us to share the very best gift with others, whatever the context, no matter how scary it is. Being confident that God's uh, good news will go out so that many will seek God and find him as they turn in repentance and faith in Jesus. Amen.